Thank you, Nicole, as always, for bringing us into God's Word in a way that is very personal, very present, um, very moving. Good morning, everyone. Um, Mark and I are just returning very, very early this morning from a week at camp. And because I was planning ahead, which I have to plan ahead to plan ahead because that's not my normal MO, I brought with me the clothes that I was going to wear this morning for church in case we were really delayed. But when we were at camp, I laid them out somewhere where they wouldn't get messed up or bothered, which meant I didn't see them when we packed yesterday. And they are still in Texas. And so I punted this morning by wearing my party dress. Um, <clears throat> but my party dress is not normally a headband dress, but today was a headband day. And the only headband that matches has llamas on it. And I just want you to know this, that when you come up to take communion, the llamas aren't a distraction, okay? Um, sometimes that is just how life is. Um, tucked into the back of our Old Testament, what the Hebrews would have called the scriptures, <clears throat> um, are 12 short little books that are often called the Book of Twelve, very cleverly and creatively. Uh, the very first one of them is called Hosea. The reason they're called um, the Book of Twelve is because there's 12, but they're also called the Minor Prophets, and it's not because they're not important, it's just because their books are quite short several pages usually at the most. And I have a fairly complicated relationship with the minor prophets, a long relationship with them. As a kid, growing up in a family that was very centered on the Lord and church, I knew that every day you were supposed to read your Bible. And so I often read the minor prophets because they were the shortest thing I could find. Didn't always know, in fact, hardly ever knew what I was reading, but they were short and I could feel like I'd finished and done something. Um, in college, I studied the Minor Prophets in a class called the Minor Prophets uh, because it fulfilled my Old Testament requirement. Uh, I wasn't the only one I needed to take, but that was the reason that I took that one for sure. I spent about a year researching the Minor Prophets for a book at one point because that was my job. And the past month, I've dove into specifically Hosea because that was the predetermined schedule for our sermons. Um, it makes it sound like I've only gone to the Minor Prophets because there's been some underlying necessity for doing it. And that may actually be true when I think about the history of it. But what I want to say is that every time that I have spent extended time in them, I have been surprised, I have been challenged, I have been fed. They are utterly lovely. Strange indeed, but they are lovely. So today we're going to look at Hosea, which is the very first of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And we can't possibly look at the whole story today, so I just want to lay some things out for you to think about and then encourage you this week to spend some time in Hosea. Um, extended time and really ask the Lord to speak to you. So Hosea was prophesying in the 8th century BC, so in the 700s, and at that point Israel was a divided kingdom. There was the large northern kingdom known as Israel, the small southern kingdom known as Judah. Hosea is the only prophet who was a writing prophet who was both from the northern kingdom and also prophesying to 
the northern kingdom. Both of those things were true of him. He's kind of a unique person because of that. And during this time, Israel is trying to preserve her tenuous independence. They had just come off of several decades of material prosperity, which sometimes is good in the moment, but leads to things that aren't so good. And in order to preserve her tenuous independence, she was sort of flirting with Assyria to the northeast and Egypt to the southwest, trying to pit them against one another. Like, will you save us from them? Will you keep us safe from them? And not really committing to either one and ending up then being defeated by the Assyrians shortly after Hosea was prophesying and hauled off into exile. And that was the end of Israel as the northern kingdom. Amos was prophesying at the same time as Hosea. Amos was primarily prophesying about external injustices that were being committed by the people of Israel. Hosea talks about the internal condition of the people and about the injustice that they were displaying towards their faithful God by their unfaithfulness to him. Uh, some people are mostly familiar with the book of Hosea because of a novel that came out about 30 years ago now, maybe even 40 years, called Redeeming Love. Um, uh, redeeming, uh, we're not going to do a book report. I just want to say that the point of Hosea's personal story in the book of Hosea, it takes up about 11 verses is all. There's 14 chapters and 11 verses are about Hosea being told to marry a promiscuous woman who then is going to leave him at some point and he is going to redeem back to him. It was kind of a one-cycle thing. It was, some people think, a visible parable of what God's experience was. Um, the novel took God's experience and used it as a parable of sort of a human experience. Because in the book of Hosea, Hosea's unfaithful wife, they go through one cycle of leaving and returning and reconciling. But the Lord and Israel go through multiple cycles of leaving and kind of returning and leaving again and kind of returning and leaving again and kind of returning. And Hosea is about the Lord. It is the story of God the story of Hosea that it starts with is just sort of a preface to set the stage, but it is not the main part of the book. And I would suggest to you that the reason Hosea was told by the Lord to marry a promiscuous woman who was then going to leave him, that he would have to go redeem, was so that Hosea had just a taste, the smallest of tastes, of what the Lord experienced with his people so that when he began to prophesy, he could be speaking out of experience and emotions of his own, but which are enormously magnified in the Lord's experience. So I think it's important when you spend time in Hosea this week to remember that this is not a story about Hosea and his unfaithful wife, Gomer. That is the springboard to get us into the long story of the Lord and his people. When you read the Minor Prophets, actually when you read any of the Old Testament, I think it's pretty easy to go, now, <clears throat> I know this is part of the Bible, but <laughs> exactly why does it matter to me now? 
So the question today that I want us to look at just real briefly is, what does a book that was written thousands of years ago to a very specific group of people living in a very specific place who were dealing with very specific political and cultural issues, what does it have to say to us today? Because I do believe that all of scripture speaks to us. I don't think that means all of scripture offers us a really clear takeaway action step, but I do think all of scripture speaks to us. And I would offer you four small, quick, enormous, lifelong things that Hosea offers us. The first one is that Hosea reveals God's heart to us. Hosea reveals God's heart to us, and it does it vividly and vibrantly. And really, the message of Hosea about God's heart is not complicated. This is it. God loves and is faithful to his people, period. That's the message. It tells us that over and over again, because just like Israel's people kept leaving, I think all people tend to be kind of slow to catching truth. And so Hosea tells us over and over and over again that God loves and is faithful to his people. In fact, Hosea is really the first prophet, the first in the Old Testament, who describes God's love as this unconditional, unfailing, everlasting love for his people. Hosea is the one who lays this out first, and he lays it out clearly. The book is filled with God's pleas to his people to return, to come back. Come back to me who made you, who has in covenant with you, and who loves you. And it echoes with images of his love, his persistent pursuit of them, his fierce faithfulness. And it also echoes with images of his anger towards all of the false gods, all of the false teachers, all of the false loves, and all of the false ways of living. We need to meet God in Hosea. And we need to spend time getting to know him in the way that Hosea describes him to us. Because it is both lovely and shattering and so convicting. It is so convicting. Because, (laughs) secondly, Hosea reveals the human heart to us. Profoundly and painfully, he reveals it. And the message is not complicated. It is simply this. Our natural tendency as humans is to forsake the one true love that really matters. That is our natural tendency. We would rather seek more immediate, more visible, more seemingly less less costly covenants, um, which in fact end up being cheap covenants. The book echoes with images of people's adulterous, idolatrous, and foolish faithfulness just like Israel of long ago. And the ways that Hosea describes the people of Israel is painful because he's describing humanity. They are stubborn, they are foolish, they are idolatrous, they are adulterous, they're unkind, they're arrogant, they're rebellious, they're fickle, they're childish, they're disobedient, and to give it some visual images, they are like stubborn heifers 
old discarded pots, silly witless doves, dried fruits, and fruitless trees. So if you need a shot of encouragement this week, might I recommend Hosea? <laughs> because he is going to reveal to us what the human heart is really like. It's prone to wander. It's prone to think of itself first. So when reading Hosea, I think we have to ask this question, am I these things? Could I possibly be a little bit like Israel was? Or have we progressed past that? I think we have to be careful that we don't assume that we aren't those things just because we're part of a church, uh, because we've grown up in the ways of the Lord, because we claim the mantle of Christianity, even because we've been baptized. That does not completely eradicate and remove the natural tendencies of the human heart. What it does is mark us and remind us who we belong to and whose we are. But those kind of temptations are daily pitfalls that we have to work against. The third thing I think that Hosea offers us is an invitation to know God, as Nicole talked about. And the word know implies a couple of the things. First, it implies intimacy, the closeness of a husband and wife, which is how Hosea's personal story sets this up. The intimacy and the love and the commitment between a husband and a wife. But it also invites us to know the Lord uh, in the same way that a mother and child does, which actually is some of the imagery in Hosea. When Hosea describes Israel as the child of God, the son of God, the way that he describes God is very maternal. I leaned down to you. I held you close to my cheek. I fed you. These are things that are normally associated with maternal roles in scripture. God loves Israel as his wife, as his bride. He loves Israel like a mother loves a child that she was given birth to. And in fact, there's a spot in Israel says, you are so stubborn, it's like you want to stay in the womb and you refuse to be born. Like you are my child. I am the mother giving birth to you and you refuse to enter into that relationship. Hosea invites us to know God intimately. He also invites us to know God in a way that implies wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Learning about God. Knowing God's word and his truth. But God's people, writes Hosea, have refused to understand. They are living foolish lives. Intimacy, knowing God this way, is a heart issue. Knowing God with wisdom and understanding is a head issue. And I think there's a third way, which knowing God implies action. Um, Mike knows how to play keyboard and guitar, and we see that in action. There are people in here who know how to build homes, and we see that in action. There are people in here who know how to counsel others, and we see that in action. There are people in here who know how to do artistic things, and we know that they know that because we see them do those things. God invites us to know him in the way we live, and this is a hands issue. So we are called to know God fully. 
with our thoughts, our affections, and our actions. Head, heart, and hands. The way you know someone really is to really fully know them. Hosea invites us to do that. And it echoes, which we've spoken about before, one of the very first commands that was given to God's people. Love intimacy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. With all of you. Because that's what this relationship is about. And fourth, Hosea invites us to fidelity. Faithfulness is a very, um, I don't know, I think it's a word that can easily just become thin and flat. Fidelity carries this weight with it, and that is what we are called to. Hosea 4.1 says this, Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel, O people of the Lord. This is the charge that he has brought against you. There is no faithfulness, no loyalty, and no knowing of God. Those are the two things that he says were missing to the Israelites. And so he's inviting us to those, to the knowing and now to the fidelity. I want to suggest to you today that I don't think that we have intentionally done this, but I think over time there's a possibility that the salvation message has become flattened and emptied. When we say we are saved by faith alone, I don't think we mean just going, well, I believe, there's, I believe in Jesus. I believe he did those things. I believe in all kinds of things that I don't actually follow through on. I believe that eating a certain way isn't healthy. It hasn't stopped me yet. I believe that running is probably good for you. It hasn't started me yet. I believe that getting a good night's sleep is the best thing for my health. It is one of the most impossible things for me to do. I can believe all kinds of things, and that doesn't mean that I'm being faithful to them. I don't think we are saved by belief alone or saved by faith alone. Even the demons believe. We are saved by faithfulness. We are saved by being faithful to the Lord, which certainly encompasses faith, and it does not mean we're saved by doing good things for the Lord. But being faithful to him certainly is supposed to impact how we live our lives. So I would just suggest that we need to be very cautious about flattening out the salvation message to saying, as long as you believe in Jesus. That is not enough because the demons. In fact, the demons were the first ones who recognized who Jesus was. The first ones. Fidelity or faithfulness calls us to be fully allegiant, fully loyal to only God, to only our Lord. And that is a challenge in today's world because the world is full of idols. I think we might like to think that since we're past the ancient world where there were weird little calves and silver things and trees that were carved like stuff and wooden idols that we live in a world that we don't deal with those kind of temptations. We don't have pagan temples on every corner. Maybe we do. 
but maybe we do. Because really, are we any different? Think about all of the things that we worship, that we give our time to, that we give our allegiance to, that we think, I don't know if I could live without this. And this was not just an Old Testament thing. The New Testament, when people have, Jesus has died and been resurrected, the Holy Spirit has come, warns us about idols. Let me read you from Colossians 3 a little bit. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, Paul is writing to followers of Jesus. Set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ now lives and sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven and not the things of earth because you've died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Put to death, therefore, all the sinful and evil things that are still lurking within you. He's writing to followers of Jesus. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. And don't be greedy, because a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Paul warns followers of Jesus about idolatry. And John, in 1 John, which might be the New Testament book that most speaks of the overwhelming, lavish, unconditional love of God, just like Hosea does, this is how he ends his book, which is about love, 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 love and light, light and love, love, more light, kind of is like a slinky, it goes around and around and around. And interspersed in all the love and light are warnings against false teachers, false messages, and false gods, and this is how he ends. On a high note, we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we can know, there's that word, know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God. We know him intimately. We live in fellowship with him and we live in fellowship with his son Jesus Christ because he is the only true God. We are faithful to the only true God and he is eternal life. Last sentence get ready for the big big finale to how much he loves us so dear children stay away from idols the end or as one translation says it dear children keep away from anything that might take god's place in your heart period end of letter what a shocking way to circle that thing back around, we think we know where it's going and then it goes here. Because apparently John felt like that was the last thing that we needed to be reminded of. The message that we are called to be faithful was very vital in the Old Testament before Christ's death and resurrection. It was necessary for the first generations of people following Jesus who actually knew people who'd lived and walked alongside Jesus. So I'm confident that it is still necessary today that humanity is as it has always been, prone to wander from the creator, fully in need of his redemptive love and utterly lost without him. Hosea 6.6 says, these are God's words to his people, I want you to show love, not just offer sacrifices. I want you to know me 
more than I want your burnt offerings. Jesus quoted that verse several times to people when he was teaching. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, writes Hosea, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Know him and be faithful to him, allegiant, loyal, unswervingly, covenantally committed, and in him. Hosea tells us of a God who faithfully pursues his faithless people through generations and through centuries. And 700 years after Hosea spoke and wrote, Jesus quoted his words, and Jesus is the embodiment of God chasing after his faithless, wandering, um, betraying people. And so he came to earth to redeem wayward adulterous, idolatrous, foolish humanity. After Hosea's wife left him, he went back and bought her back, not because he was buying her as a slave, though the people who were selling her were selling her for a slave's amount. But he was not buying her into slavery. He was buying her out of slavery and into an intimate covenantal relationship with him again. And we see that fulfilled in Jesus, who buys us out of slavery. Not with 15 pieces of silver, like Hosea did, but with his very life. Hosea points to Jesus. He fulfills everything that Hosea was writing about and saying. And he invites us to know Jesus Christ intimately, wisely, and actively. And he invites us to be faithfully loyal to only him, the one true God who sacrificed his life for us so that we could have real life. I'll pray for us, and then we are going to share in the Lord's Supper and remember what the words of Hosea led to. Let's pray. Dear Lord, forgive us for being prone to wander. Forgive us for being unfaithful. Forgive us for getting our first, only, true love, which is you. Thank you that the story of scripture going back for thousands of years reveals to us who you really are and who we really are. And thank you, Lord, that it all leads to Jesus Christ so that there is now hope true hope for living in a covenant relationship with you the way that you've always intended. We love your word, Lord. We love the words that are in your word. And we love the word who was in the beginning. 
It's in his name that we pray. Amen.